The search term Aztec religion will reveal dozens of bloody pictures. Dismembered bodies, hearts carved out of the chests of human sacrificial victims, their blood spilling down pyramids like a waterfall. For many modern readers, human sacrifice is the defining feature of Aztec religion. And the Aztecs did practice human sacrifice. A lot of it, as did other ancient Mesoamerican cultures. But no religion can be understood through one ritual. So, what do we know about Aztec religion? And why did they practice human sacrifice? When modern scholars say Aztec Empire, they're usually referring to a political entity living in the central Mexican highlands from around 1300 to the 1500s. Aztec is actually a name introduced by modern historians in about the 1800s, basing the name off their semi-mythical homeland, Atzlan. These people did not call themselves Aztecs. The Aztecs were an alliance of three indigenous people groups, the Acolhua, the Tepanec, and the Mexica. And when we talk about Aztecs, we're generally referring to that last group, the Mexica, because they were the dominant group living in the capital city, Tenochtitlan, a huge city on an island in the middle of Lake Texcoco, which over the centuries dried up and is now occupied by Mexico City. These indigenous ethnic groups making up the Aztec Empire spoke the Nahuatl language, which is why many scholars today prefer to use the term Nahuas to describe all of these Nahuatl-speaking ethnic groups. And to be clear, Nahuas still exist today. Contemporary Nahuatl religion is heavily influenced by Catholicism, but they still practice indigenous religious expressions that deserve their own video. But in this video, I'll be focusing primarily on the Mexica, when they ruled the Valley of Mexico roughly between 1300 to 1521, when it fell to Spanish invaders. Much of what we know about Aztec religion comes from 16th century Spanish sources, like those composed by Bernardino de Sahagún, a Franciscan friar and missionary who wrote huge studies on Aztec culture while living in Mexico. His work, the Florentine Codex, is an important ethnographic study based on reports from native informants, and includes a bunch of illustrations made by indigenous artists. If you've done even a brief study into the Aztecs, you've almost certainly seen some of the images from the Florentine Codex. But as important as these studies are, we need to realize that all of the information is being filtered through a European and Christian lens. Another caveat, much of what we know about Aztec religion could technically be called Aztec state religion. The religious expressions mandated and upheld by the ruling elite of Tenochtitlan. We know very little about Aztec domestic religion or folk religion, the type of religion I typically research. So, to be accurate, most of this video focuses on large-scale state religion of the Mexica or what the scholar of Mesoamerican religion, David Carrasco, calls the mystical military religion of the Aztec warrior class. This includes the sacrifices conducted by elite priests at their temples and the mythology recorded by their educated nobility. So, keep in mind while watching this video that we are examining a relatively narrow slice of time, a relatively narrow slice of Aztec society, filtered through the lens of Catholic writers like Bernardino de Sahagún. And with all of those caveats, let's get into it. Aztec religion was polytheistic. There are way too many gods in the Aztec pantheon to cover thoroughly in this video, as many as 200 according to some sources, but we'll focus on a few major ones. The scholar H.B. Nicholson argues that the Aztec gods can be categorized into three loose clusters. First, what he calls celestial creativity slash divine paternalism gods. 
This would include the divine couple that created the universe, sometimes conceptualized as a dual supreme god called Ometeot. The second category of gods is rain and agricultural fertility, which includes, most importantly, the rain god Tlaloc. The third is war sacrifice, nourishment of the sun, and the earth gods, which includes the feathered serpent, Quetzalcoatl, underworld gods like Mictlantecutli, and Huitzilopochtli, who was basically the Aztec patron god. Aztec lore remembers him as the one to lead the Aztecs from their homeland to Tenochtitlan, while Quetzalcoatl is known from other Mesoamerican religions, including Mayan and Toltec. So, what do I mean by war sacrifice, nourishment of the sun, and the earth gods? The Aztecs believed that the universe throughout cosmic history had passed through four ages, each time ending in the collapse and recreation of the cosmos. An amazing archaeological discovery, a massive Aztec sunstone, depicts these four ages. It dates to the early 1500s, right before the Spanish arrival, and had been buried in Tenochtitlan after the city fell before being discovered a few hundred years later in 1790. In the center is the sun god, Tonatiu, who presides over the fifth age, and around him are four boxes depicting the four previous ages. We now live in the fifth age, which needs to be maintained and stabilized by nourishing the sun, earth, and rain via rituals such as processions, fasting, purification, dressing in costume as the gods, and famously practicing blood sacrifices, which we'll return to later. The Aztecs also followed a 365 solar cycle and a 260-day ritual cycle. These two calendars aligned every 52 years, which at that time they celebrated the new fire ceremony to renew the cosmos which involved destroying their household goods and extinguishing all fires before lighting a new fire on a sacrificed victim. So this category of war sacrifice and nourishment gods reflects this Aztec vision of the cosmos and the associated rituals performed to maintain the cosmos during the fifth age. Okay, so those are the three main categories in the Aztec pantheon, but even these categories are too simplistic. Some scholars might even say misleading. See, we're very accustomed to talking about gods as specific persons with discrete powers, domains, or attributes, partially because Western pop culture feeds us a lot of stereotypes about the Norse and Greek gods. Everyone knows Thor, he's the god of thunder. Ares, he's the god of war. Specific human-like beings with specific domains, thunder and war. But this is not necessarily the most accurate way to talk about Aztec gods. The identities of Aztec gods, their functions, and their attributes were fluid. We see this in the Nahua word teot, which is translated as god. We have already seen this word in the names of certain Aztec gods, like Ometeot, the dual creator god, but teot can also be translated as sacred gods, like Ometeot, the dual creator god, but teot can also be translated as sacred power. Because of this, some scholars of Aztec religion argue that we shouldn't even categorize these gods as personalities, but more in a pantheistic sense. Gods are forces and powers moving through the cosmos, rather than discrete personalities. So let's take Tlaloc as an example. Sure, he is associated with rain and storms, but it would be way too simplistic to call him the god of rain. We could also say he is the force or power manifested in things associated with rain, like moisture, fertility, 
or the destruction caused by storms. Related to this, yes, we could say that Quetzalcoatl appears as a feathered serpent, but his identity sometimes blends in with Ometeot as a creator god. Quetzalcoatl also appears in the persona of the wind god, whose persona also blends in with Tlaloc. Quetzalcoatl also appears as human wisdom and skill, and in the night sky as the planet Venus. So we can see that Aztec gods had multiple aspects. Aspects that, according to the scholar Isabel Locke, blend into each other and defy any clear identification. Gods could also take the form of humans in the ritual of deity impersonation. Some Aztec rituals involved humans impersonating a god by dressing in costume. But as David Carrasco argues, deity impersonation was not like pretending to be a god in a Shakespearean play. The Aztecs believed that the person actually became the god. The Aztec pantheon was also very adaptive. When they would conquer a village, they would take the statue of the village god and store it in one of their temples, which scholars interpret as the Mexica constantly adding new gods to their pantheon. After the Spaniards conquered the region and started forcibly converting the indigenous people to Catholicism, many Nahua people adapted the new religion to their cultural frame of reference, referring to Saint Mary and Saint Anne by indigenous mother goddess names. It seems that gods gained or lost popularity over the centuries, too, probably tied to the ebb and flow of political change. So, for example, right before the Spanish invasion, Aztec state-sponsored rituals revolved around Huitzilopochtli and Tlaloc. These two gods were enshrined in temples on top of a huge, 90-foot-tall, pyramid-shaped building in the center of Tenochtitlan, now called the Great Aztec Temple, or the Templo Mayor. Here's an artist's representation of the Templo Mayor based on historical descriptions, and although it was destroyed following the Spanish conquest, you can still see the foundations preserved. Archaeologists have discovered similar dual staircase temples in other major Aztec cities. The Templo Mayor symbolizes one of the greatest myths associated with Huitzilopochtli. According to Aztec mythology, when he was still in his mother's womb, his sister, Coyolxauhqui, tried to attack his mom in league with her 400 brothers. But as soon as Coyolxauhqui attacked, Huitzilopochtli emerged from the womb armed for battle to defend his mother. According to the myth, he killed Coyolxauhqui, decapitated her, and then threw her down Mount Coatepec, Serpent Mountain, her body breaking apart at the bottom. In 1978, while digging at the foot of the staircase leading up to Huitzilopochtli's shrine, electrical workers discovered a huge monolithic stone depicting Coyolxauhqui, decapitated and dismembered. Chemical analysis has revealed it was painted something like this, with Coyolxauhqui in a pool of blood. This huge monolith of the dismembered Coyolxauhqui, situated at the base of the stairs leading to Huitzilopochtli's temple, seems to reflect this myth, symbolically transforming the staircase below his shrine into the slopes of Serpent Mountain itself. And sure enough, the Aztecs called this temple Coatepec, and to this day we can see stone serpents built into the stairway's base. Thus, the Templo Mayor was an axis mundi, the center of the Aztecs' world and mythology. So, now that we've talked about the gods, or divine forces, in the Aztec pantheon, what about humans? According to David Carrasco, one of the most pervasive notions in Aztec religion is the sacrality of the human body and its potential to return its energy to the cosmos. What does he mean by the energy of the human body? Well, the Aztecs believed that the human body was a sacred reservoir of divine forces called Tonali and Teolia, 
Tonali was an energy or gaseous substance that the Aztecs thought resided in the head and hair. They believed that the creation god, Ometeo, sends it into the head of a fetus while in utero. Tonali derives from the verb to make warm with the sun, or to irradiate, and the Aztecs associated it with warmth as well as solar heat. Tonali was also responsible for your body's strength and health, which is why Aztec warriors are portrayed grasping prisoners of war by their hair, literally holding the person's reservoir of vigor and strength. Teolia, on the other hand, was thought to reside in the human heart and is tied to human reasoning, perception, and understanding. Scholars describe this like a divine fire, a divine spark, or light matter, a force that was particularly strong in priests and people close to the gods. When a person dies, their Teolia leaves the body, and when a warrior dies, their Teolia rises to the sun. Both of these powers were thought to permeate and saturate reality. They were not just housed in the human body, but resided in nature, like mountains and lakes, as well as temples, animals, plants, and objects. So, to summarize, the Aztecs viewed the human body as a composite of forces, or energies, literally residing in the body. We've also learned about Aztec cosmology. The universe is cyclical, going through phases of cataclysm and renewal. So, now that we know about these two concepts, let's turn to the infamous ritual of human sacrifice, which Isabel Locke calls a form of energy recycling, a way to nourish the gods with energy that the human body provided. Human sacrifice was widely practiced in Mesoamerica, but it seems to have increased in popularity between the 12th and 16th centuries among the Aztecs. As David Carrasco says, human sacrifice was not a random or occasional ritual. It was practiced every single month. Scholars estimate that around 20,000 people were sacrificed per year. But these rituals were not all the same. There were upwards to 18 different ceremonies that involved human sacrifice, sometimes involving elite nobles eating the flesh of the sacrifice victims. According to the Spanish soldier Bernal Diaz, who was part of Hernando Cortez's army, some sacrifices mimicked the dismemberment of Coyo Shalki, with the victim having their arms and thighs cut off. But the most famous sacrifice was practiced during the yearly festival of Toshkot, which celebrated one of the creator gods, Lord of the Smoking Mirror. This was a god-impersonating festival. The priests chose a young, captured warrior who needed to be in perfect physical condition. They dressed him as an impersonator of the god and made him live among the people for a year. Then, after one year, the god impersonator was sacrificed at the Templo Mayor. The priest would cut out his heart and display his skull on a rack, which not only is depicted in a 16th century codex, but has also been discovered in recent years by archaeologists. While excavating at the Templo Mayor in Mexico City, archaeologists found hundreds of skulls perforated on the sides, direct evidence of the skull rack. 75% of the skulls were from men between the ages 20 and 35, but 20% were also from women, too. Remember the importance of the head and the heart. The head functioned as the reservoir of the divine force Tonali, while the heart was the reservoir of Teolia, which they believed to rise up and replenish the sun after a warrior dies. Also keep in mind that the Aztecs believed that humans impersonating a god literally became the god. So during that year, the god Tezcatlipoca was thought to literally live among the people and was literally sacrificed as a god. 
Scholars have offered many different interpretations of Aztec human sacrifice over the past few years, often viewing it through a political lens as an institution that the elites of the empire upheld to exert power. So, because the Aztecs frequently sacrificed prisoners of war, some scholars tie the practice to expansionist imperial ideology, a warning to conquered neighbors or to intimidate rivals. Sahagun reports that rulers and nobles from neighboring cities were summoned to witness the rituals. So we can imagine the political ramifications of witnessing these rites. Others, like the archaeologist Michael Smith, suggest that human sacrifice was a form of propaganda by terror. Public spectacles that intended to terrify the people and warn them against any sort of social unrest against the ruling elite. Still, others view it as a form of civic religion, a form of social cohesion in urban centers, as the common folk frequently participate in the ritual itself by preparing the victims for sacrifice. How then shall we begin to think about Aztec human sacrifice as students of religion? Forty years ago, the scholar of religion, Dr. Jonathan Z. Smith, asked the exact same question, but for another ugly chapter in the history of religions, the Jonestown Massacre. On November 18, 1978, Jim Jones, the leader of the religious movement, the People's Temple, coerced over 900 members at gunpoint to drink a fruit drink laced with cyanide. Today, this massacre is the inspiration behind the famous phrase, drinking the Kool-Aid. When Smith wrote his article in 1982, only four years after the event, he noticed that no scholar of religion was trying to make sense of it. They were ignoring it. But Smith thought that this was abdicating the responsibility of religious studies academics. Even though this event was so heinous, so vile, he asked, how then shall we begin to think about Jonestown as students of religion? He argued that we need to banish the idea that Jonestown is too exotic for us to understand. Banish the idea that it's too exotic that we must simply condemn it without trying to understand it. We must be able to declare that Jonestown on November 18, 1978 was an instance of something known or something we have seen before. In other words, quoting the Roman playwright Terence, I am human and I think nothing human is alien to me. So in an effort to make sense of the Jonestown Massacre, Jonathan Z. Smith spends the rest of the article analyzing the movement's leader, Jim Jones, putting him in the context of charismatic and manipulative leaders of the past who had utopian visions of the future. I was trying to channel my inner Jay-Z Smith in this video by starting with Aztec cosmology, then moving to Aztec mystical human anatomy before finally moving to human sacrifice. I was trying to make the unfamiliar familiar placing the ritual in the context of world renewal ceremonies as well as in the context of political and military control. But let's turn to David Carrasco's perspective. As a Mexican-American scholar of Mesoamerican history, David Carrasco has been very open about what he calls Aztec moments. Moments when he remembered his native roots, that the indigenous people of Mexico, including the Aztecs, are part of his cultural history. In his book, Mesoamerican Religions, Carrasco writes that his first Aztec moment came when he was 13 years old, living in Mexico City. He visited the Museum of Anthropology and was mesmerized by looking at Mayan jade, dumbfounded by the huge Aztec calendar stone. He writes, my feelings continued to grow. I became aware of a sharp inner conflict. I was feeling both a cutting shame 
and intense pride in my Mexican ancestry. Having spent time in the United States before moving to Mexico, he was very accustomed to how American schools praise and romanticize the Greeks and the Romans. Our buildings look like Greek temples. Latin is inscribed on their walls. The ancient Greeks are praised as the founders of democracy and directly linked to American democracy. Mexico, on the other hand, in his words, was a country valued mainly for its defeats, jokes, folklore, and tasty food but not for its civilization. But in the midst of these Aztec moments, Carrasco also recognized the importance of studying the Aztecs. Just like the Egyptians and the Romans, the Aztecs had artists, philosophers, kings, and architects who produced complex calendars, monumental architecture, artwork, and literature that Carrasco argues deserves to be counted among the great literature of the world. At the end of his introduction to the Aztecs, Carrasco strikes a positive tone. Despite the Aztec history of conquest and sacrifice, Carrasco sees that people today are reinterpreting pre-Columbian indigenous culture in the 21st century, especially in festivals like Dia de los Muertos in Mexico. If you'd like to learn more, I'm including a bibliography in the description below. And if you are a current Religion for Breakfast patron on Patreon, I'm launching... Mexicas, or better known as Aztecs, dominated large parts of Mesoamerica from the 14th to 16th centuries. Sometimes the term Aztec also includes the inhabitants of Tenochtitlan's two principal allied city-states, the Acuas and the Tepanecas, who together with the Mexicas formed the Aztec Triple Alliance that controlled what is known as the Aztec Empire. From the 13th century, the Valley of Mexico was the heart of Aztec civilization. Here, the capital of the Aztec Triple Alliance, the city of Tenochtitlan, was built upon raised islets in Lake Texcoco, surrounded by mountains and volcanoes. The Triple Alliance formed a tributary empire, expanding its political hegemony far beyond the Valley of Mexico, conquering other city-states throughout Mesoamerica. They were fierce warriors and experts in war tactics. Floral wars were institutionalized to create trained warriors that have enough sacrifices to keep the sun moving, as their mythology depicts. But nevertheless, they were highly developed in science and arts. Spanish conquistadors were blown away by the size of their lake city, bigger than London or Venetia. They called it the city of palaces. The hygiene of the city was contrasting with the European. In each neighborhood, they constructed public bathrooms. All their fecal wastes were used as fertilizers for their crops. While at the time, London was drinking water from the polluted River Thames, the Aztecs supplied their city with clean water carried from the aqueducts of Chapultepec. Even the Spanish conquistador, Andreas de Papia, didn't understand why the Aztec emperor, Montezuma, took two baths per day. And to keep the water clean, the Aztecs used axolotls, the eight detritus, keeping the water in perfect conditions to be used. Without a doubt, they were one of the biggest empires in the world, not just in territory, but in science, arts, celebrity, economy, education, and astronomy. To understand Aztec music, first of all, we can't know for sure how exactly was their music. Unfortunately, there is no written music, but we have a ton of Aztec instruments. 
so we know their scales, as well as the purposes of music, which were depicted in codexes that documented how life was on the Aztec civilization. The Aztecs saw their instruments as magical objects with a soul and animistic approach to them. When the gods died in Teotihuacan, the priests wandered aimlessly. Tezcatlipoca asked a devotee to go to the House of the Sun to obtain singers and musical instruments to honor him. The turtle, the whale, and the mermaid would make a bridge to wherever his devotee passed. He reached the House of the Sun, but the Sun had warned his people and servants to ignore the chant given to the devotee by Tezcatlipoca under the threat of being expelled to Earth. But Weiweitul and Teponatli couldn't resist, and because they answered the call, they were expelled from the sun's house to earth in the form of musical instruments to raise their chants to the sun's house. Since then, men have known music. This myth is found on Fray Juan de Torquemada's Monarchia, Indiana. The Teponatli is a type of slit drum made of hollow hardwood logs with two slits on the top side, H-shaped and played with rubber-headed wood mallets. These drums ranged in size from about 30 centimeters to 1.2 meters long. The tongues have different lengths and sometimes carved into different thicknesses, so they produce two different pitches, near a mayor third or perfect fourth apart. In addition to dances, teponatslis were used to accompany poetry readings. The notations were the sounds of the drum beats, even at times appearing within the poetry itself. Each drum pattern is written using four syllables, to, ko, ti, ki. The weiweitul was used during festivals such as warrior gatherings. The drum is made from hollowed tree trunks and came in different sizes. Carvings of animals, faces, or warriors were often carved into the base of the drum. The skin used was mainly from ocelots. They were used in battle, in the sad night where the Aztecs defeated Hernan Cortes in a battle, they used Weiwei tools placed on the ground to transmit the instrument's vibrations through the ground to intimidate the Spanish soldiers. This ended in a massacre for the Spanish army and the fleet to Tlaxcala. Among other common instruments used by Aztecs, we can find the Tlapitzo, a seashell used as a horn associated with the god Tlaloc. Some archaic animal-shaped whistles, ocarinas, such as the Tilapis Cale, with pentaphonic scales, whistling jars, and water, and bone scrapers. Artistic education was imparted in several types of schools, such as the Kalmikak, a school for noble men, where they learned astronomy, religion, sciences, philosophy, and music. Cuicacale, which was a musical and religious school together with the Mixoacale, House of the Clouded Snake, also a school for chants and dances. And some important pre-Hispanic musicians were Teca Yuatse, Napuk Tan, Mayan priests mentioned in the sacred book Chilam Balam, Tequanitzin, and Tulacuepan, and undoubtedly the best-known composer Coyote, King of Texcoco. It is said that he wrote more than 70 songs. The purposes of music in the Aztec culture were for historical communication, delivering information, and for creating a national identity. The repertoire for this purposes were devoted to chants, established calendarized chants, and new chants for historic and military feats, as well as for religious rites and feasts. In conclusion, 
the Aztecs, as any other pre-Hispanic cultures in what is today's modern Mexico, were quite rich in traditions, architecture, poetry, celebrity, warfare, and gave music a very important place in their education and religion, as well as a way of life. Ironically, Mexican music has more in common with European styles, such as the waltz, the polka, and the Polish mazurkas, or composers such as Beethoven or Chopin. Nevertheless, Mexicans have combined European influences with their prehistoric roots to create an even more rich and beautiful culture. Neatly into the historical record. It's are not stories that are un it's are not stories that are untrue. Rather, they are tales that don't fit neatly into the historical record, which serve as a foundation to a culture. Four times the gods created a new sun, and four times they destroyed that sun, and an age came to an end. And so shall our current age, the fifth sun, come to ruin. But the manner of cataclysm is unknown. What is known to the Aztecs, however, is that every 52 years, we must thank the gods by offering them our blood. This next deity was both male and female. Universe, the god-goddess of duality, created itself. This deity was both male and female, both two beings and one. Next, the god goddess produced four sons, Tezcatlipoca, Xipatotec, Quetzalcoatl, and Huitzilopochtli. The latter of the two were charged with the creation of the earth, its people, and the other gods. Tezcatlipoca decided he wanted to be the first son. So after the gods created the sun and stepped back to admire their work, he snatched it away, tying it around his waist and rising into the sky. And the other gods just watched and said, Well, I mean, uh, you know, one of us had to be the sun, so let's see what he can do. And set about making the first people. These were not people as we know them, but giants who roamed the earth eating acorns. However, a mistake had been made. The sun was too small and the people too large. When 13 times 52 years had passed, Quetzalcoatl decided he wanted to be the sun, thinking he could do a better job. So he leapt into the sky with a great stick and knocked Tezcatlipoca out of the firmament. Tezcatlipoca plummeted into the ocean and changed shape. He emerged from the water as a jaguar and ate all of the giants, thus ending the age of the first sun. Quetzalcoatl took his place as the sun. This time, the people were the correct size, but only had pinion nuts to eat, and all was well for another 13 times 52 more years, until Tezcatlipoca, seeking revenge, ran across the sky as a jaguar and kicked the sun. As Quetzalcoatl fell, he became a hurricane, which blew away almost all of the people and their houses. The ones that remained were transformed into monkeys. Then, the god of rain, Tlaloc, moved in to become the third son, the people in this age ate only river reeds, but this age ended when Quetzalcoatl, still angry at Tezcatlipoca, sent a great rain of fire and burning stones. And it was so hot, the sun itself went up in flames. When the fires at last cooled, the ground was ashen, and the people had been turned into turkeys. Fighting amongst themselves wasn't proving to be very productive, so the gods convened to ask the god of rain's wife to become the fourth son. 
But when she did, the people only had wild seeds to eat, and it rained constantly. For years and years it rained, until finally the world was consumed by a great flood. The rivers and lakes rose above the mountaintops, and the people who survived turned into fish. And it rained so hard that the sun itself fell out of the sky. When the rains finally stopped, the earth and sky were both destroyed. But swimming in the waters after the great flood was the earth monster, who wailed and howled for the flesh and hearts of people to eat, devouring anything the gods created. Quetzalcoatl and Tezcatlipoca, putting aside their differences, descended in the form of serpents and grabbed hold of her. Quetzalcoatl grabbed her left hand and right foot, and Tezcatlipoca her opposite hand and foot. Together, they pulled her in all four directions until she ripped in half at the waist. The spirits took her bottom half and used it to put back the sky, while the other half they turned into the earth. Her skin was used to make the grass and flowers. Her hair they turned into forests. Her eyes were fashioned into pools and springs, and they made mountains from her shoulders and valleys from her nose. So now that the land and sky were put back in place, the spirits were ready to create the people anew. They sent Quetzalcoatl down to the Deadland, where he met the Lord of the Dead and his wife, guarding the bones of the dead. They would allow Quetzalcoatl to take the bones, but only if he could blow into the Lord's conch horn. However, when Quetzalcoatl took the horn, he found it had no holes. The Lord of the Dead had played a trick on him. So Quetzalcoatl called upon worms to drill holes in the shell and bees to buzz to make the horn sound. When the Lord heard the horn, he allowed Quetzalcoatl to gather the bones. But he played another trick. First, he tasked his helper spirits to dig a grave. Then he sent a host of quail to startle Quetzalcoatl, who fell in and lost consciousness, scattering all of the bones. The quail then gnawed on the bones until they were destroyed. When Quetzalcoatl awoke, he was distraught at the sight of the destroyed bones. However, he still gathered up the fragments and returned to the land of spirits. Another goddess took them and ground them into powder, which she poured into a jade bowl. Then Quetzalcoatl shed his own blood into the bowl. Seeing his sacrifice, the other gods followed suit. Then the bones came to life and the spirits rejoiced. Born are the people, they cried out. We bled for them, so they shall bleed for us. But these new people had nothing to eat. Luckily, Quetzalcoatl saw a red ant carrying a kernel. So he turned into a black ant and followed it to where he found maize and other delicious food inside a food mountain. Wait, does food mountain really exist? Is that a place? Because I would like to buy the first ticket there right now. The gods agreed to split the mountain open and give the spoils to the people. All except the greedy Tlaloc, who stole everything, and only gives a little back each year in exchange for spilt blood. But at least the people now had maize, and it kept them strong. Finally, with everything back in its place, the gods set about making a new sun. Texasacatl, a boastful and haunty god, proclaimed he'd become the sun. However, the other gods were skeptical, so they chose another. The humble Nenuatzin, who was weak and covered in sores. Texas Ticatl walked to the edge of the Great Pyre, and despite bragging a bunch, and him trying four times, he couldn't bring himself to leap into the fire. Nanahuatzin then closed his eyes. 
gathered his courage and ran forward. He plunged into the fire, and his body burnt up. A blinding flash appeared in the east, and Nanuhuatzin rose as Tonatio, the sun god. Texas Ticatl was shamed by his cowardice, and finally leapt into the fire as well. But when he rose, there was too much light. So the other gods threw a rabbit at him, which dimmed his light, and he became the moon. Rabbits, the celestial nightlight. But for some reason, Donatio stayed motionless in the sky. So the spirits sent a falcon to ask why he did not move. And he replied, I demand their blood. When the other spirits heard this, they realized they must sacrifice themselves just as Nanahuatzin did. So they slashed their bellies and cut out their hearts, holding them aloft, offering to Donatillo, who only then began to move across the sky. Thus began our current age. And just as the gods sacrificed themselves so the sun could move across the sky, so too did the Aztecs believe people must follow the example of spilling blood to thank the gods for their life, their maze, and the sun. by the union of the god Tonecatecutle and the goddess Tonecasehuatl, the lord and lady of our sustenance. And so, 
Ometiolo was both one and two at the same time. They came to be out of nothing. And for a time, they were all that was in the whole of the universe. For nothing else had yet been made. Tonacatecutlan and Tonicasehuatl had four children. There was Red Sipetote, the flayed god, god of the seasons and the things that grow upon the earth. Black Tizcatlapoca, smoking mirror, god of the earth. White Quetzalcoatl, plume serpent, god of air. And blue Huitzilopochtli, hummingbird of the south, god of war. The god children lived in the 13th heaven with their parents. Of these children, Tezcatlipoca was the most powerful. Together, the four children of the dual god decided that they would like to create a world and some people to live in. It took them several tries before the world became the way we know it today, because the gods fought over who should be the sun and rule the earth. The first attempt at creation was made by Quetzalcoatl and Huitzilopochtli. First, they made a fire, which was the sun. But it wasn't big or strong enough to give much light or heat, as it was only half of a sun. After they made the sun, Quetzalcoatl and Huitzilopochtli made a man and a woman. They called the woman Oxumoka, and the man Sipakdoni. The gods told the man and the woman what work they were to do. The man was to be a farmer, while the woman's duty was to spin thread and weave cloth. The gods gave the woman the gift of maize. Some of the grants were magical and could cure illnesses or help foretell the future. Together, Oxumoko and Sipaktonal had many children, who became the Masihuales, the farmers who worked the land. Even though there was already a half-son, and even though there were already a man and woman, the gods had not yet created time. This they did by making days and months. Each month had 21 days, and when 18 months had gone by, this made 360 days, and that span the gods called a year. After there was a son, a man, and a woman, and time, the gods created the underworld, which was called Mictlan. Then, Quetzalcoatl and Huitzilopochtli made two other gods to rule over this place. They were called Mictlan Tecutle and Mictikasehuan, the lord and lady of Mictlan. When all this was done, Quetzalcoatl and Huitzilopochtli created some water, and in it they placed a giant fish. The fish was called Sipakli, and the earth was made out of the body of the fish. Oxumoko and Sipaktonal had a son named Peltzen Tecutli. The gods looked upon him and saw that he had no wife. At that time, there was a goddess of beauty and young women called Soki Quetzal, Flower Quetzal Feather. The gods took some of Soki Quetzal's hair and from it, they made a woman to be Pilsen Kudli's wife. The gods looked at all the things they had created, and they were not satisfied with them, especially with the sun, which was too weak to give much light. Tezcatlipoca thought about how to make the old sun brighter, but then he thought of a better idea. He turned himself into the sun. This new sun was much better than the old one. It was a whole sun, and it gave enough light to the world the gods had made. This was the beginning of the first age of the world, the age of the first sun. The gods also wanted more beings in their new world. They made a race of giants who ate nothing but pine nuts. The giants were very large and very strong. So strong were these giants that they could uproot trees with their bare hands. 
So, for a time, Tezcatlipoca shone brightly over the world the gods had made. But after this world had existed for 13 times 52 years, or 676 years, Quetzalcoatl thought his brother had reigned as the sun for long enough. He took his club and struck Tezcatlipoca with it, sending him plummeting down, down, down into the waters that encircled the world. Tezcatlipoca was very angry that Quetzalcoatl had done this. He rose up out of the water in the shape of a giant jaguar. And in this shape, he roamed about the whole earth. The jaguar hunted all the giants and devoured every one of them. Once all the giants had been eaten, Tezcatlipoca rose back up into the heavens, where he became the constellation Jaguar, Ursa Major. The second age of the world was the age of the second sun. This was the age of wind. Quetzalcoatl made this world, and Quetzalcoatl was the sun during this age. The Masafales lived in this age eating nothing but pine nuts. The second age also lasted for 676 years, until Tezcatlipoca took his revenge on his brother. Tezcatlipoca came to the world in a blast of wind so great that Quetzalcoatl and the Masafales were blown away, although some of the Masafales escaped the blast. These turned into monkeys, and they ran away into the jungles to live. After the time of the second sun was complete, the god of rain, whose name was Tlaloc, he who makes things sprout, became the sun and ruler of creation, and his age is the age of the third sun. This age lasted for seven times 52 years, or 364 years. During this age, the people ate the seeds of a plant that grew in the water. But again, Quetzalcoatl destroyed this world. He brought down a rain made of fire, and all the people were turned into birds. After Quetzalcoatl ended the reign of Tlaloc, he gave the world to Tlaloc's wife, Chalchiutlikwe, Jade Skirt Woman, to rule. Chalchiutlikwe was the goddess of rivers, streams, and all manner of waters. She was the sun for six times 52 years, or 312 years. This fourth sun age was a time of great rain. It rained so long and so hard that there was a great flood that covered the earth. The flood washed away the Masafuales, turning them into fish. After the flood was over, the sky fell down and covered the earth so that nothing could live on it. The gods looked upon the world they had made and saw how it had been destroyed by their quarreling. Quetzalcoatl and Tezcatlipoca made peace with one another and went down to rebuild the world. The gods each went to one end of the world, where they transformed themselves into great trees. With their mighty tree limbs, they pushed the sky back up into its place, and they hold it there still. The god Tonacatecutle, the father of Quetzalcoatl and Tezcatlipoca, looked down and saw that the brothers had ceased their fighting and had worked together to mend what their anger had broken. Tonakatakutle therefore gave the brothers the starry heavens to rule, and he made a highway of stars for them to use as they traveled. This highway is the Milky Way. Then, the gods created new people to walk upon the earth. Once the sky had been put back in its place, Tezcatlipoca took flint and used it to make fires. These fires lit the world, for the old sun had been destroyed in the flood, and a new one had not yet been made. Also, there were no people, for the giants had all been devoured, and the people had all been turned into monkeys, birds, and fish. So, Tezcatlipoca met with his brothers to take counsel about what to do. 
together, they decided that a new sun would have to be created. But this would be a new kind of sun, one that ate human hearts and drank human blood. Without sacrifices to feed it, this sun would cease to shine, and the world would return to darkness once more. So, the gods made 400 men and 5 women, and these were to be food for the new sun. Some say that Quetzalcoatl and Tlaloc each wanted their sons to become the fifth son, and that these gods each took their sons to one of the great fires that had been kindled. Quetzalcoatl's son had been born without a mother. The god threw his son into the fire first, and he became the new son. His son rose out of the fire and went into the sky where he still is to this day. Tlaloc waited until the fire had nearly burned itself out. He took his son, whose mother was Chalchiutlikwen, and threw him into the glowing embers and ashes. Tlaloc's son rose out of the fire and went into the sky as the moon. Because Quetzalcoatl's son went into the blazing fire, he became a creature of fire and glows with a light that is too bright to look at. But because Tlaloc's son went into the embers and ashes, his light is dimmer and his face is splattered with ashes. And this is how night became divided from day and why the moon and the sun crossed the sky in different ways and along different paths. But another tale tells how the sickly god Nanahuatzin willingly sacrificed himself to become the fifth son. The gods had gathered at the great city of Teotihuacan to discuss how they might make a new sun to replace the old one that had been destroyed by the flood. One of them needed to jump into the bright bonfire and then rise into the sky. Nanahuatzin, god of disease, whose name means full of sores, came forward. I will do this thing, he said, even though my body is diseased and bent, and even though my skin is covered with leprosy. The other gods laughed at Nanahuatzin. They said, you silly fellow, you are sickly and weak. You will not have the courage to jump into the fire. Let someone else become the sun. Then, Dekuzis Dekana, the one from the place of the conch, came forward. He was a most wealthy god, well-made in his body, and well-dressed with all manner of gold and feather ornaments. I will do this thing, he said, for it would be better that a healthy god make this sacrifice than a sickly one. The other gods agreed that it should be so, and caused a great fire to be kindled. While this was being done, Dekuzis Dekana and Nana Watson retired to places where they might fast and prepare offerings to purify themselves, so they would be worthy to become the new sun. Dekuzis Dekana prepared offerings that were made of the finest things, of jade and quetzal feathers, and balls of gold. Nana Watson's offerings were humble reeds and the spines of the magwe cactus. At the appointed time, Tecuzis Tecan and the other gods gathered around the fire. The wealthy god, dressed in his best finery, strode up to the great blaze with its searing heat. He made us to throw himself in, but at the last minute, he balked and walked away. Again, he tried, but he could not bring himself to jump into the flames. He tried again, and yet again, but each time his courage failed him. After the fourth time, he walked away from the bonfire and from the other gods, ashamed that he had not been able to turn himself into the sun as he boasted he would do. The other gods wondered how they would make a new sun, since Dekustikano had failed to jump into the fire. But all was not lost. Nana Watson had not forgotten his offer to become the new sun, and he had also fasted and purified himself so they might be a fitting sacrifice. 
the sickly gods stepped forward, dressed in garments made of paper, and walked straight up to the raging fire. He stared into the heart of the blaze for just a moment, then threw himself into the very heart of the flames. Nana Watson's hair was ablaze. His clothing was ablaze. His skin crackled with the heat of the flames that licked all around his body. Takusa's Takano saw the courage of the sickly Nana Watson and was deeply ashamed. So, he also stepped forward and jumped into the flames with Nana Watson. An eagle and a jaguar had been watching the sacrifice too. They saw the courage of Nana Watson and Takusa's Takano, and so they joined the gods, throwing themselves among the flames. This is why the eagle's feathers are tipped with black, and why the jaguar is covered with black spots. This is also why the Aztecs created the orders of the eagle and the jaguar to honor their bravest warriors. After the eagle and jaguar had thrown themselves into the fire, the other gods waited to see what would become of Nana Watson and Tecuzis to come. Slowly, slowly, light began to rim the world. The gods looked all around, wondering where the source of the light was. Then, suddenly, Nana Watson burst forth over the eastern horizon, covering the world with the brightest light. His sacrifice transformed him from the lowly, sickly leper god into a new sun god, Olin Tonatiu, whose name means movement of the sun. But Dekuzis Dekami had also transformed by his sacrifice, and shortly after Nana Watson rose into the sky, so did Dekuzis Dekami. And now the gods had a new problem, for there was not one, but two suns in the sky, and the light they made together was too bright for anyone to see anything. One of the gods snatched up a rabbit that was nearby and flung it into the face of Takusa's Takata. The rabbit hit Takusa's Takata so hard that his light was dim. That was how the moon was created, and the shape of a rabbit was now permanently marked on his face. Then the gods rejoiced, for now they had both a sun and a moon. But their joy was short-lived. For Tonati refused to move from his place in the sky until all the gods had sacrificed themselves to it. The other gods grew angry and refused to do this thing. But Tonati was steadfast. He would not move until he had drunk the blood of the other gods. Tlahuiz Kalpantakutli, Lord of Dung, who was the Morning Star, said, I will stop Tonati. I will save you from having to be sacrificed. Tlahuiz Kalpantakutli threw a dart at Tonatiu with all his might, but it missed. Tonatiu threw a dart of his own back at the Morning Star, hitting him in the head. This changed Talhuiz Kalpantakutle into Itzla Koliuki, curved obsidian, the god of coldness, frost, and obsidian. And this is why it is always cold right before the sun rises. The other gods realized they could no longer refuse what Tonatiu demanded. They came before him with bare breasts, and Quetzalcoatl cut out their hearts with a sacrificial knife. Once the gods had been sacrificed, Quetzalcoatl took their clothing and ornaments and wrapped them into sacrificial bundles. These sacred bundles were then worshipped by the people. Sated with the blood of the gods, Tonatiu began to move across the sky, and he has done so ever since. And this was the birth of the fifth sun, the sun under which all life lives to this day. But still, the people offer blood and hearts to the sun to ensure that he is satisfied and to keep him on his sacred path across the sky. Please note 
that there is no unitary Aztec creation myth, but rather several variant tales of how the world came to be. In this video, we have covered from the National Endowment for the Humanities. years pass. 
From the four Tezcatlipocas, the givers of light choose Quetzalcoatl, Lord of the Dark. And they choose Tezcatlipoca, Lord of Night, to create universal order. Time, space, earth, wind, fire, water, humanity. Tonaka Tecuti and Tonaka Sibat, our Lord and Lady who give us our flesh, are watching the creation, are watching the work of Tezcatlipoca and Quetzalcoatl. Their first task must be to create a world. They each want their own way, their own power. They are as different as day and night. It will not be easy. Tezcatlipoca has become the first son. The people look like giants, big giants, eating acorns. Quetzalcoatl has already knocked his brother into the darkness. Someday, they will see him in the stars. Jaguars are eating the first people. Look, only their bones remain. It is Quetzalcoatl's turn to create the second creation. He has chosen Shalshudlikwe, spirit of the waters, to rule. Left. 
Look what you've done. My beautiful creation's gone. Just bones. All that is left are bones, bones, bones. And smoked turkeys, butterflies, and dogs. Dark spirit. You used my power against me. The people, the houses, the mountains. Blown away. Washed away. Nothing remains. And we were chosen to make an earth that stands in balance. And a sun that moves. We have failed. Maybe not. Let me think about this. You have the power of the day. I have the power of the night. If we let our differences be our allies, just think. Just imagine what we could create together. Imagine a time of flower and song. Rattles and goods. Jade and fine plumes. Black and red ink. Imagine water and hills. Eagles and jaguars filling the next creation. First, we need to make an earth and a sky. But what can we use? The great Cayman will be the earth and the sky. Tiscatlipoca and Quetzalcoatl are making space for the sky. They are dividing it into 13 levels. There must be a moon and clouds in the first level and stars in the second. The sun will cross the third. The morning and evening star must live in the fourth and the rest of the planets in the fifth. The sixth and seventh will be green and blue. And in the eighth, wind will scream like knives. The lords will dwell in the ninth, tenth, eleventh, and the twelfth levels. The highest level is the thirteenth, the level of knowledge, Omeyokan, the place of duality, home of the mother of creation and the giver of life, our home. Now they must create the earth. The earth is to be the first level of the underworld. They are struggling to capture Tlalta Kudli, the great Cayman. The earth mother. Look, she bit off his foot. It has turned into a smoking mirror. His foot is a smoking mirror. Cayman is getting away. Tiscatlipoca and Quetzalcoatl are turning into giant serpents. spring trees and little bushes. From her skin will grow the delicate grasses and tiny flowers.
she suffers from her eyes will spring wells and caves from her nose will rise the mountains and from her mouth great rivers will flow and they are in the land of the dead. Someone must retrieve those bones. Who would like to go? Who is strong enough to go? Precious serpent, you all must go. Yes, yes. You go to the land of the dead and bring back the bones. Take your Nawali with you. Go. Take Shalot, your Nawali, your spirit guide. Go down the Jaguar path through the primal waters. Go past the serpent guarding the road. Beware as the mountains crash together. Avoid the mountain of obsidian. Fly straight through the wind that cuts like knives. Pass the waving flag. Be cautious at the eighth level. The dead return there. It is their place of birth. At the very bottom, the ninth level, where the rulers, the clan Zakudi and the clan Tziwa of the underworld dwell, is the place of no chimneys, where the air is thick with smoke and ash from the bones of the first four creations. It is the place of eternal transformation. There you will find the bones. when you came to this land from your precious mountains, from your precious waters. I marvel at you. I admire you. Am I to believe that you came to visit? The new earth is hungry. We came for the bones of our ancestors. We must create new humans again. New humans? You already made and destroyed four creations. Bones rain on me. Am I to believe that this new earth is more precious than the others? 
This fifth creation was made by Tezcatlipoca and I through sacrifice. It is good, but now we need humans to carry on our sacrifice. Humans to feed the sun and the earth. Good. Good? Mm. Good only comes from hardship. Go around my mountains, my waters, four times, and if you survive, if you survive, sound my shell horn. Only then may you leave with the bones. Now go. 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 <laughs> New humans. Stop them. We are doomed in this place of no chimneys. There are no holes. Now we will become the bones. Shh. I hear them coming to help us. Who? Since things have turned out badly, 
let them turn out as they may. Since the bones are broken, the new people will just be different sizes. Precious Serpent and East New Valley are crossing the mountains. They are crossing the valleys. They are coming here to Tamuanchan. The place of life. The place of origin. Marked by a broken tree. Paradise, our home. Home of all our relations. will grind the bones. They must make an offering of themselves to bring new life to the bones. To make human life possible. will remember the words of Shalshutlikwe, spirit of the waters. Eagle warrior, ocelot warrior, valiant warrior, you have come to arrive on earth. They are 
are hungry. They are here because of our sacrifice. They deserve their life on Earth. But now, they cry. We have created humans to care for the Earth. Now we have to find them food. Quickly, what will we feed them? Where will we look? Precious serpent will find the food. Look, he sees something already. Uh-huh. Oh, little one who carries things. Where did you get that kernel of corn? Oh, hard-working one. Tell me, what did you steal that piece of corn? not steal. If you are honest, tell me. Where did you find it? Why should I tell you? The new humans are hungry. Please. Far, far away, there is a mountain filled with seeds. Please take me, little one. Mm. No. Please. No. Please take me, little one. No, no, no. Take me. No.
who can strike the mountain and scatter the seeds. It's a small one, the little one, crippled one. He is Nanawatsin, the humble one. He must cast the spirit of rain for help. Call the crippled one. Watson to the caves of the rain spirits. He must get lightning from each of the four directions. strikes the mountain of food. The lightning breaks it open. The corn is freed for humans to eat. Now the Talokis come, come in to gather the seeds. are carrying the seeds into the fields. How beautiful they are sprouting. They are flowering. There is white corn and dark corn, yellow corn and turquoise corn, beans and amaranth seeds, early corn and late corn, dry corn and healthy corn and squash. to heal. 
Let us show her how to use the 20-day names and the 13 numbers to keep the 260-day sacred year. Watch. The day one came on is the precise starting point of the 13-day count. All born within its count. One came on. Two wind. Three house. Four lizard. Five serpent. Six death. Seven deer. Eight rabbit. Nine water. Ten dog. Eleven monkey. Twelve grass. Thirteen reed. We'll have good fortune. A very different fortune accompanies the next 13 days. One jaguar, two eagle, three vulture, four movement, five flint, six rain, seven flower, eight caiman, nine wind, ten house, eleven lizard, twelve snake, thirteen death. The 20 names and 13 numbers revolve on to 13 flower, the last day of the sacred calendar. Each new year begins again with the day one came on. We give man and woman a divine place in this sun. But do they rejoice? Do they sing? Do they dance? Do they pray to us? No. Perhaps we could create something, something to ease the pain and the hardness of life. But who can help us? Precious serpent, as the wind is flying off to ask for help from a maiden, a forbidden maiden, guarded by her grandmother, the star demon of the nighttime sky. Come with me to Earth. We will sing and dance together. No, my grandmother will kill me. No. No. Strong and fast as the wind. I will protect you. Precious serpent is taking the maiden, Mayawel, to earth. They are hiding in the shape of a tree. The spirit of the wind is one branch. Mayawel is the other. Her grandmother and her star demon will catch them. Why? Let them dance. She must be sacrificed to give woman her tools, her needle, her yarn, and her medicine. Those star demons are devouring her.
in her. Now the wind spirit must gather her pieces. They are coming together to make a new sun, to finish this fifth creation. Oh, brothers, sisters, who will carry the burden of lighting the world? Watson 
and taxis the cut to purify themselves for four days on two hills in Teotihuacan. The offerings of taxis to cut are so precious. His grass balls are made of gold. His maguey spines are not ridden by blood. They are carved of coral. And his incense is very good incense. It is very good incense. The fir branches of Nanawatsin are just made from green water rushes bound in bundles. His grass balls are only sweet, smelling reeds. His maguey spines are covered with his own blood. And he used gabs from his sores for incense. It is time. It is time to set the divine hearth for eternity. The fire in the center is made. It is midnight. They are dressing for their sacrifice. Watson is crackling and popping like one who is roasted.
plainly the proud one is following. The fire is devouring them. It is slowly and gently touching the white eagle. Its feathers darken. The ashes are giving the jaguar its spots. begins. The sun will rise in the north. Oh, it will rise in the south. There, there it is. It's about to rise in the west. No, here, here in the east. From this direction, the sun will rise. The sun will rise in the east. The wind spirit will find him. 
paz. Shalom. Quetzalcoatl must now breathe his life into the sun. The wind spirit must blow it on its path. Now he must blow on the moon. Look! The people of the fifth sun are walking in the light. They are bringing the wood. They are continuing the ceremonies given to them by the Tiscatli Pocas. They are following a way of life. They are singing and dancing for the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, and for their children. of our ancestors made life in this fifth creation possible. We have a choice today. We may follow their example and give of ourselves for the continued existence of this sun, of this age of movement. Or we can ignore their sacrifices and this creation too. 